And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, kal grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he's known as mild-mannered TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. And welcome to yet another episode of Charlie's Geekcast. I am your host, Charlie Neymar, and today we are once again returning to 1983 to continue our look at DC's attempt to update Superman for the 80s. This time out, we're going to look at both Superman and Action Comics issues released in May of 1983. So, after you enjoy these promos, I'll be right back with Superman number 386. Charlie's Geekcast will return after these promos. Can you believe it, Jay? Young Justice is back! The Cartoon Network show from five years ago? Uh, No, yeah, that too. I I mean the comic book. Oh, cool, a comic book based off the Cartoon Network show? No, yeah, I mean that too, but but not that. The 1998 Peter David run? No, yeah, kinda, I mean... This is gonna get confusing. Wait, 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 wait. Are you trying to say that there's a brand new comic book series written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Patrick Gleason, along with a new season of the animated show on the DC Universe streaming app, and a digital first comic that fills in the gaps between seasons two and three? Yes. I mean, yes. Sounds like we need a podcast to keep all this straight. <laughs> That's what I've been trying to say. Well, say it. The new podcast, Everyone Loves Young Justice, will spin out of Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake as a sister podcast following the adventures of Tim Drake and his new team, Young Justice, with members like Superboy, Impulse, Wonder Girl, Arrowette, a Red Tornado, the Justice Cave, Miss Martian, Blue Beetle, Shazam, the Supercycle, Jitty Hex, Teen Lantern, Jay, Jay! What? <laughs> One thing at a time, man. Oh, uh, sorry. We will start right where it all began in the pages of the 1998 Peter David run. And we will alternate between that and the new Brian Michael Bendis 2019 run. While also discussing the DC Universe animated series and tie-in comics. We are part of the BatmanUniverse.net podcast network. We can be found there or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're going to cover all aspects of Young Justice. Man, I love Young Justice. I know. Everyone does. Oh, I get it. (sighs) I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. But just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are that week. Up. 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 
Superman 386 had a cover date of August 1983 and an on-sale date of May 12, 1983, with a cover price of 60 cents. The cover by Gil Kane depicts a giant Lex Luthor in his new body armor, ripping the Daily Planet globe off the WGBS building, while telling the floating Superman, You destroyed everything I loved, Superman. Now I'll do the same for you. To me, this is not one of Kane's best offerings. The Daily Planet globe is more egg-shaped than globe. Uh, there's something weird going on with Luther's hands that make his fingers look abnormally long or make the palm of his hand look really small. And Luther's still missing the helmet from his armor. And also, some of the line work in the armor makes it look like part of the artwork was blown up and Luther had a really bad case of bags under his eyes. And if I'm nitpicking, the WGBS building is missing the letters WGBS on the sides. I mean, that's kind of important. The title of the story is Luther Lashes Back, written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Dave Hunt, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Anthony Tallinn, and edited by Julie Schwartz. If you were in the city of Metropolis at the start of this issue, and you looked up, you would see a strange sight. Not a bird, not a plane, not even the Man of Steel. Instead, you'd see Lex Luthor's new power armor flying around without anyone in it. At the same time, if you happen to be at the WGBS building, basically right outside of it, on the ground, and could stop looking up for a second, you'd see Lex Luthor calmly entering the building as though no one would recognize him. Fortunately, the security guard does recognize him, but he's unable to stop him before he enters the elevator by literally walking through the closed elevator doors. Somehow, Luthor manages to then take the elevator up to the 8th floor and walks through another closed door into Clark's office. Justin Moore is already in there getting some writing tips from Clark, so when Luther enters, he confronts the villain. But Luther uses his matter transmuter to toss Justin out through the same closed office door. Then Luther proceeds to tell Clark his version of how Superman destroyed Lexor, and says he wants Clark to report it, both in the Daily Planet and on WGBS. He wants the world to know that he will have his revenge in the most torturous way possible. Then he proceeds to leap from the window just as his armor arrives. Then it dematerializes long enough for Luther to pass into it, and then rematerializes before he can pass all the way through it, and Lex is able to fly away in the armor. As he flies away, Luther figures there's a 59.8% chance the Superman will soon be on his tail, so he shoots a beam toward the WGBS building. Inside, Clark changes to Superman, but before he can get too far, a giant version of Luther threatens to destroy the WGBS building from the top down. Superman realizes it's just a 3D hologram, but it's convincing enough to cause a panic in the building. Meaning, he needs to deal with that first. But we don't see how he does this, because we then switch to a news report about the incident in an office being visited by Perry White. 
The office belongs to a marriage counselor named Dr. Morris, and as the doctor turns off his TV set, Perry tells him that his wife is not aware that he's even there. While we leave that little tease, we shift to Pittsdale, where Sam Lane is thinking about how much better Lois is doing now than when she first arrived, while he takes out the trash, which consists of just about every Superman memento that Lois had. Speaking of Lois, she's busy making her bed while thinking about returning to Metropolis, but then Luther shows up in her room, materializing out of seemingly nowhere. He uses some kind of a beam to make her stick to the wall, and before he can do much more than gloat about his new armor, again, Lois tells him that coming after her won't do him much good because she and Superman are, are no longer an item. Realizing that killing her would not begin to equal his grief over the loss of Ardora, Luther leaves. Sometime later, after a short scene to remind us that Luther broke several criminals out of prison for reasons we will not be learning this issue, we join Clark and Morgan Edge on the galaxy plane, returning to Metropolis from Boston after interviewing a candidate for WGBS's new sportscaster. As they near the city, Edge spots what he thinks is a new transmission tower, but Clark is horrified to see that it is an exact duplicate of Luther's Neutra Rod. And to make matters worse, it's already seething with the energy overload that destroyed Lexor. So, grabbing a parachute, Clark jumps from the plane, leaving Edge to think that Clark smells a big story. Using the parachute as cover, Clark changes to Superman, with plans to get rid of Luther's rod. Hey. But Luther, waiting nearby, hits Superman with a beam that covers the hero in a molecular sheath, which blocks out all the yellow solar rays. Going on the offensive, Luther is able to slam into the weakened Man of Steel hard enough to send them both deep into the Earth, while Luther monologues, again, about getting his revenge, again. Superman uses what is left of his heat vision to burn off the sheath. It hurts like hell. But Luther's calculations to the contrary, Superman is barely able to withstand the pain. Rather than attack before the sheath is completely vaporized, which would probably be the smart thing for a genius to do, Luther retreats to plan more schemes. But a rejuvenated Superman gives chase. However, as they reach the surface, Superman has to give up the chase to deal with the neutral rod. But the neutral rod is just a fake. It fizzles out and melts down to the ground, while a pre-recorded message from Luther plays to tell Superman that he vows that the worst is yet to come. While Superman ponders over whether he'll be up to the task of stopping Luther next time, over in Pittsdale, the Lane family is sitting down to watch some television when a special report comes on. Why, it's Lois's friend Lana, interviewing two bigwigs from the Middle East. And as a shocked Lois realizes that Lana has taken her story, the issue comes to an end. Alright, my notes for this issue don't start until we get to page 15. Now, I understand that he's been out of town for a couple of hours, but how was Luther able to set up that neutral rod without Superman noticing at all? That doesn't make sense. I mean, Superman's constantly doing patrols. He would have seen it, whether it was got the energy flowing over it or not, he would have noticed a big green tower. Uh, page 18, I like the effect of the molecular sheath on Superman. Superman almost looks like he's been eclipsed. He's completely in shadow with just a little bit of highlight on the, on the, like, the edges. But the S-shield is still bright red. It's a cool effect that doesn't require any computer coloring, which is really nice. Overall, I was actually pretty disappointed with this issue. I mean, it started off fine with Lex announcing his revenge again, the trick with his suit, and then going after Lois. But then things kind of fell apart. We still have no explanation for why these particular criminals were broken out of prison or why they're so loyal to, Le to Lex. 
And Luther went to all this trouble just to trick Superman with a fake tower? What? Anyway, outside of the story points, the writing was actually good. Everyone felt like they were in character despite the situations they found themselves in. And the art was great too, although I will admit that the fight could have been a bit more bombastic. It was good, it just didn't feel like it had enough energy. And that's going to do it for this issue, so after a couple of promos, I'll be back with our second issue of this episode. But first, our number one song for the week. Since Michael Jackson's Beat It is still at number one, this week's number two song was Let's Dance by David Bowie. I'll be right back. Charlie's Geekcast will return after these promos. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my Super Friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. It's a small world after all. It's a small world. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire and Water Podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
right, and our second issue for today was Action Comics number 546, which had a cover date of August 1983 and a non-sale date of May 26th, 1983, and a cover price of 60 cents. This cover depicts Superman standing on rubble, leading your favorite heroes from the Justice League and the Teen Titans into battle. Besides Superman, we can see Starfire, Firestorm, Hawkman, Zatanna, Red Tornado, Wonder Girl, Wonder Woman, Cyborg, Flash, Robin, and Kid Flash. Black Canary, Green Arrow, Elongated Man, Changeling, and Aquaman are also there, but they are obscured by either the edge of the cover or other heroes being in front of them, or in Aquaman's case, the UPC code. The cover is... Nah. This one kind of looks like a rush job, with the heroes poorly laid out, sloppy inking, Firestorm is missing a finger. The background is rather blank, but that's probably good with all the heroes on the page. It'd probably be hard to tell them out. Tell them out? Pull them out, of the, or you know what I mean. Emphasize the heroes. I mean, don't get me wrong, the idea of the cover is good. It's just the execution is pretty poor. The UPC box has been on covers long enough at this point that it should not be covering up characters. And if there had been enough time, Changeling could have been redrawn so that his head wasn't completely covered by Cyborg's fist. The title of this issue is Showdown, written by Marv Wolfman, art by Gil Kane, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Gene D'Angelo, and edited by Julie Schwartz. We begin in Superman's Fortress of Solitude, where our beloved Man of Steel is getting frustrated at his supercomputer. See, he's fed it all the info he knows about the new Brainiac, but it still says that there is insufficient data for it to analyze the villain. He tries feeding in info again, and this time the computer has enough info to indicate that Brainiac is composed of living metal before the screen goes blank. Frustrated and in no mood to try to fix his computer, Superman flies back to Metropolis for a nice relaxing bath. But as he arrives at Clark's apartment, Jimmy also shows up. With Lana getting ready to go on the air with her worldwide news report, Morgan Edge wants Clark covering the news desk, and Jimmy has been sent out to find him. After a quick taxi ride to WGBS, Edge lays into Clark about always disappearing when he's needed. But for once, Clark shows some backbone, telling his boss to stop threatening him before leaving again. With no other options left, a flabbergasted Edge is forced to have Jimmy cover the news desk. Outside, Clark has changed to Superman and is flying up to the JLA satellite. See, while he was getting yelled at by Edge, his telescopic vision actually spotted Brainiac's ship, and he figures he's going to need help from the world's greatest superheroes if he has any hope of stopping him. Inside, Kid Flash is actually trying to get some advice from his mentor about his future, when an ominous Superman asks Barry to call in everyone. Feeling that they'll need all the help they can get, he also asks Kid Flash to call in the Titans. Soon, they are joined by Hawkman, Starfire, Cyborg, Firestorm, Changeling, Raven, Zatanna, Wonder Woman, Wonder Girl, Adam, Green Arrow, who is once again obscured by something. Just the face, you can see his body. I'm guessing maybe Kane couldn't draw the goatee very well or something and Red Tornado. After some quick chit-chat and getting brought up to speed about the new Brainiac, satellite monitors show Brainiac's skull ship in the skies over New York City. After a quick JLA teleporter ride to the Big Apple, the battle begins. Eventually, Superman realizes that they're going to need his supercomputer if they're to have any hope of winning, but when he takes off, several of Brainiac's warriors give chase. But they've been given devices to feed off of Superman's powers, so no matter how fast Superman goes, they're able to keep up. However, their metabolism overloads before they can catch our hero, which allows him to escape despite the fact that they turn into basically burning ash. Meanwhile, in Pittsdale, Lois is stunned to see Lana doing her TV interview. She blames Superman for taking her away so that the witch could get her story and runs off. 
Now that that's taken care of, we go back to the main story. In the Arctic, Superman reaches his fortress, but the supercomputer is still on the fritz. However, this time, his microscopic vision picks up an electromagnetic anomaly, similar to the one that occurred in the past when sunspot activity had gotten bad. This time, he figures that he must have caused them when he dove into the sun to destroy Brainiac's red sun torpedoes last issue. But if sunspots can affect even his supercomputer, he figures he can affect the living computer, Brainiac. After showing us more fighting in New York, Brainiac arrives at the fortress and spots Superman flying off, presumably with some sort of plan in mind. Since not even his computer brain can calculate what Superman is intending to do, he decides that the Man of Steel needs to be eliminated now and gives chase. They manage to head out into space and get pretty far from Earth, it appears, before Brainiac is close enough to use his tractor beam on Superman. Rather than fight it, Superman uses it to fly towards Brainiac's ship even faster than usual. But apparently Brainiac cannot use the tractor beam and his force shields at the same time, so when he switches to his force shields to keep Superman out, Superman is able to escape from the tractor beam. He gets away and flies into the sun. Now, since sunspots are caused when regions of the sun become cooler than the rest of it, not like you're going to be going out there for a vacation, but relatively cooler. Thousands of degrees instead of millions, maybe. Now, Superman creates a super tornado to cool off a region near Bra where Brainiac is, creating the same effects as a sunspot. This causes Brainiac to begin shutting down, but before that happens, and before Superman can get into the ship, Brainiac activates backup drives to send his ship away and into hyperspace. While there's no way for Superman to track him, at least he's gone for now. Soon, Superman returns to New York to see that the fighting has stopped. Once Brainiac left, his control over the Warriors was broken, and they had no reason to continue the fight. After promising them that, they, that he will find a suitable planet for them to live on, Superman brings the heroes up to speed on what happened, and while he knows that Brainiac will return, Wonder Woman is confident that they will be ready. Alright, some quick notes. Page 4 of this story. Uh, although Clark does recognize it was out of character for him to stand up to Edge, I would love to see if there's some sort of follow-up to this. Every once in a while, Clark is allowed to act out of character for a little bit, and then yeah, it's kind of forgotten quickly. Uh, last issue, uh, in the Superman issue, he f jumps out of a plane with a parachute going, supposedly going after a story, which is not very Clark Kent. And now he's standing up to edge. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it gets ignored. Page six, as is common in these types of stories, we get a little tease of Kid Flash's subplot in the Teen Titans to entice readers to go check out that book. Page nine, the artwork in the middle panel is a swipe of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, art from his licensing work. I had his version on a t-shirt once that I would still have if my cat hadn't accidentally clawed a bunch of holes into his shirt. And it's also been used in DC subscription ads. I even remember once where they used it and edited out Superman when they used it after, shortly after his death. On page 14, one full page to ensure that our ongoing subplot is accounted for, even though half of it is actually repeated from the Superman issue. I haven't double check to make sure that all the dialogue matches up but i mean it's pretty much the same scenes on page 16 tara has suddenly shown up just long enough to tease her story in new teen titans she's only on panel for one panel but her thought bubbles actually go into a second panel she was not in the group shot or in any of the other shots just right here uh, also i should point out that black canary showed up in that big uh, jlgl swipe and uh she's not anywhere else in the story Page 18, granted this is probably more of a coloring issue than an art issue, but it sure looks like Superman and Brainiac are actually flying around a planet, possibly the moon, and going away from the sun. 
not toward it. Pages 21 and 22, Superman doesn't look like he's actually doing anything here. He's supposed to be making a tornado, but it looks like he's just standing there with his arms and legs out while a tornado forms around him like this is a new superpower. Most artists, including Kurt Swan, which actually show him spinning, but you know, whatever. Page 23, this ending feels really rushed because, I mean, it's one page. Then again, most one-page endings feel rushed when half the page is just the hero flying down to the city. The art in the final panels are lacking a lot of detail. It's almost like they were pulled from the Super Friends cartoons. I mean, was he rushed on these? I thought Gil Kane was better at art than this. I mean, I've seen his other work. I don't know. Overall, I will say this. This issue had plenty of action. The art is a bit sloppy, but you can still tell what's going on. The tease with Rip Hunter and company from last issue turned out to be a tease for a whole other issue further down the road, which actually surprised me. It was interesting how inconsistent the heroes were in this issue. Robin's on the cover, but not in the issue. Terra is shown in the fight, but not in any of the other group shots from before. Green Arrow's on the cover and in the big group shots, but we don't see him anywhere in the actual fight. Black Canary shows up for the swipe shot, like I said, but isn't anywhere else. However, unlike the Superman issue, there isn't that sense of a letdown. I mean, this is definitely a satisfying ending to this three-parter. However, this is where I feel this new Superman era goes off the rails. The September 1983 cover-dated issues of Superman and Action feature a two-part story that takes place before the Superman and Lois breakup from a few months earlier, with an almost completely different creative team. And then following that, Marv takes three more issues off from Action, leaving Carrie to continue our story in Superman by himself, while Action runs a three-part inventory story, also by Carrie, that is also set before the breakup. Then, once Marv returns to Action, Carrie's on for like maybe one more month, and then he takes some time off from Superman, essentially leaving Marv to bring this whole short era to a close, before both books begin their final coast into the crisis. I mean, it's sad that this synergy between the books is falling apart so soon. I mean, we only had, what, four months, maybe? But I guess that's just the way things work out sometimes. I mean, this was this looked like it was set up to try to emulate the success the Batman books were having by having Batman and Super or by having Batman and Detective essentially being the same comic. But the difference is those books had one writer for both books, but with different artists on each book. So you had Don Newton on one book, and you had uh, Gene Colan on the other book, but the same writer. And unfortunately, they did not do that here. Instead, here we have the two different writers with the two different... Although this started off with the same artist on both books, so they kind of flipped it around. But it just did not work out, and it's frustrating. I am not stopping this, though. I will continue. I'm going all the way through to the end of this short-lived era. So... We will be covering the other issues coming up. And before we get, but before we keep going, I figured I might as well read this issue's Meanwhile column by Dick Giordano. Meanwhile, I gotta tell you something. I'm having fun. Really. I mean, how many grown-ups get to live out their childhood fantasies and get paid for it? Not to mention how many people can honestly claim to have fun after working on the same job for 30 years. Only weirdos. So I'm a weirdo. But if you think I'm weird, you should see Marv Wolfman jumping up and down like some kind of nut. Hey Marv, what's happening? How come you jumping up and down like some kind of nut? I'm happy as all. 
Paul Levitz just told me DC has signed the contracts to give us the comic book rights to Star Trek. Yeah, so? So we're going to do a monthly comic and a special comic adaptation of Star Trek 3. And best of all, I'm the editor and Marty Pasco and Mike Barr are going to write the scripts for me. Big deal, another Trekkie gone zonkers. On the other hand, I'm weird for Star Trek myself, and I can't wait for the first issue. Wonder who's going to draw it. I'll ask Marv. Hey, Marv! Marv! Oh, well, too late. He beamed himself back home. Talking of contracts, we just completed negotiations with Charlton Comics, which gives us the rights to most of their action heroes. At least, that's what I called them when I created the line during my stint at as Charlton's executive editor back in the 60s. I don't know how many of you go back that far, but I was there when each of these characters were created. Heck, I was part of the creative process. I remember the energy and the fun of working with so many talented people to create the likes of Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, Judo Master, The Question, Sarge Steel, Peacemaker, Son of Vulcan. Anyway, these characters were the foundations of a very exciting and creative and formative time in my professional life, and it's a big kick to have them back. Whatever we decide to do with these titles, our plans are tentative as of this writing, I'm sure you'll enjoy them as much as I have. Incidentally, if you have any ideas about DC's future use of these titles, I'm willing to listen. My only thought at this time is to use the original creative teams wherever possible. Nostalgia? Maybe. But Steve Ditko drawing Blue Beetle could be just as exciting as it was once upon a time. Boy, that's a lot to look forward to. Onward! Did you know that, one, I goofed in last month's column. I watched Nightwatch in the early morning hours, not Nightline. No such animal. You may not care, but I suppose CBS does. And two, I goofed several columns ago in announcing the Megan Toth, Austin, Superman, Batman team-up would appear in the DC Comics Presents annual. It's in the Superman annual. Number three, weirdos tend to goof a lot. Number four, we're planning a reprint line that I'm excited about. Generally, I think of reprints as being in a class with kissing your sister, something that one does out of obligation. Not these reprints, more on them in a future column. The business types around here get nervous when I start gushing prematurely about new projects. Noteworthy. We've changed the format of the Superman Sunday page. Distributed by the Tribune Company Syndicate Incorporated, the new Superman Sunday is designed to expand readership beyond the traditional adventure fans to include the general Sunday Funnies audience. Parents, as well as boys and girls, are invited to participate in an exciting series of puzzles and mazes. Superman trivia, a reader write-in, ask Superman column, and even nostalgia, via a feature that looks at Superman artwork of the past. The Sunday Soup Special is written by DC staffer Bob Rosakis and beautifully drawn by Jose Delbo and Sal Trapani. Trapani? 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 Who also do a smashing job on the six-day-a-week dailies, which are written by Paul Kupperberg. The new Sunday page has picked up many new papers, including the New York Sunday News. Dailies and Sundays don't necessarily appear in the same papers, and if one or both doesn't appear in your local paper, it may be because you haven't hounded the newspaper's editor enough. While you think of it, why don't you drop him a note and ask for it by name? Thriller is coming! First real outing for relative newcomer Robert Lauren Fleming, and obviously a labor of love for artist Trevor Von Eden. If you want an exciting change of pace in comic reading, this is the one to try in 83. Non-returnable outlets only will be on sale with Thriller late in the year. Look for it. Thank you and good afternoon, Dick. And then there's his little extra column here. DC staffers and freelancers alike were shocked and saddened to learn of the death of Frank Sheramonte on January 28th. He died of cancer at the age of 40. 
DC and Marvel fans knew Frank best for his work as an inker, notably on Kurt Swan's Superman pencils and Mike Plug's Werewolf by Night. Most fans were less aware of his work on PS magazines and illustrated monthly maintenance manual for the army, which he did regularly since coming to this country from Cuba in 1967. Frank brought a high level of professionalism, skill, and dedication to his work, and he was a quiet yet personable gentleman. He will be missed by those who knew and worked with him. And on that note, we're going to get into our song for the week. Uh, Before we get to any more promos, the number one song is no longer Beat It. Beat It did not last as long as Billie Jean. So we're going to actually get a new one this time. Playing us out is What a Feeling from the movie Flashdance. Enjoy, and I'll be back with some feedback. But a slow glowing dream that your fear seems to hide deep inside your mind. All alone, I have cried, silent tears full of pride in a world. Charlie's Geekcast will return after these promos. You are receiving a transmission from The Rod Pod. Upload pending. Stand by for soundtrack transfer. I am Maggie. And I am John. And we are trapped, hurtling through space in a ship shaped like Rodimus's head. The ship, for reasons we haven't been able to determine, contains the entire run of the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comic, which chronicle the events following the end of the war between the Autobots and Decepticons. So we figure we may as well read them all in order and report our findings to you. Stand by. Stand by. Upload complete now. The Rod Pod. Look for us at marriedwcomics.libsyn.com at iTunes, at Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts can be found. So, uh, till all are one. Till all are one. Did you leave the car running, Andy? I did. I'm not sure why, but I did. It, it, it's important. 
like getting these comics from Ryan and Chris's Nightcast offices. Why are we getting these comics from Ryan and Chris? So, since Nightcast isn't covering what they originally set out to cover, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Jim Starlin run of Batman. So, we're getting the comics from them to do that. And and they know that we're doing this? What? That we're covering Batman issues 414 to 430? Yeah, totally. I, I checked in with them and everything. So, you got permission to get these comics, which includes the storylines, Ten Nights of the Beast, The Cult, and The Death in the Family. I totally told them we were covering these books, yes. And we're starting these episodes in May. That is, if you actually edit them on time. Yeah, Andy. The the series starts in May and can be found on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Busting my balls and everything. All right, right. Well, let, let's, let's hurry up. There are listeners that want to hear this, and I have to get back to Atlanta in 28 hours so I can get my flight home. Oh, no problem. I got the comics right here. What's going on here? Andy? Mike? What are you doing here? Why do you have our comics? Say, Mike. Yes, Andy. We didn't get permission to take these comics, did we? No, Andy. And when you told me to get the box out of the car, you were really picking the lock to get in here? Yes, Andy. So what do we do now? Well, uh, we could try to talk our way out of this, but when I tell you to run, run! The Overlooked Dark Knight covers the Jim Starlin Batman run, a multi-part series of episodes beginning in May of 2020. From the grisly dumpster killings, to a death in the family, and everything in between. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and Spotify. I'm gonna barbecue your ass in molasses! We now return to Charlie's GeekCast. Alright, we're back. We're ready for some feedback. So, first up, we have a couple of comments on the website charliesgeekgas.com for the last episode, which is episode 53. First up, we have Dave McIlvaney, who writes, I have only one comment about episode 53. If you've ever seen the 1988 movie Beetlejuice, don't say it three times, you basically know how to pronounce the name of the star, Beetlejuice. And then Chris Lister wrote, uh, also about episode 53, Beetlejuice is pronounced like Beetlejuice. Thank you, everybody. So now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! And I want to thank you for that, because I honestly did not know that. All right, now moving... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Uh, moving back to episode 52, Dave McIlvaney wrote, As I was listening to this episode and recalling reading this issue back in 1983, I was feeling a bit wistful. In 1983, I was 27, just finishing my fifth year as a high school teacher, and this comic really brought home to me that comics were now, at the time, not being written exclusively for kids. I know this was late in the Bronze Age for me to have this realization, but the storylines here, Superman's guilt over the fate of Lexor, Lois's working for her identity separate from Superman, and Perry's marital woes, were clearly aimed at adult readers in ways that the eight-year-old kids who were the target audience of my Silver Age youth would probably have struggled over, 
made me begin to see comics differently, I think. Clearly, there were action and adventure enough for the young kids to enjoy, but just as clearly, there were elements that I wouldn't have liked or understood as a kid. In retrospect, from a 21st century perspective, I can appreciate the writer's direction to produce something both kids and adults could enjoy. But I also see the seeds of what would be, for me, the approaching end of the period of my life when I would unreservedly see every comic with childlike joy and wonder. As I get older, I'm about to hit Medicare age, I wonder more and more the etymology of the word nostalgia, from Greek words meaning pain or longing for one's home. Because no matter how old I get, childhood memories have an extremely strong pull of home. Thanks for this episode, which brought forth a lot of memories and introspection for me. Wow, that was that was deep, Dave. Wow, I'm I, I am sad that this is nearing the end of your childlike wonder of comics. But I'm glad I was able to remind you of what it was like, I guess. So thank you for writing in. And then we have one other comment from an email. Thanks to Russell Bragg. And he writes, Hello, Charlie! Hello, Russell. Another fine episode. I don't think I can add much to your excellent coverage of Superman 385 in episode 52. But I can give some comments. Like you, on page 11, when Lois fell off her horse, I did think of Christopher Reeve's accident. I think since Lois wasn't jumping over something was the reason she was seriously hurt. I think he meant to write was not seriously hurt. As I write this, we came up on the anniversary of Christopher Reeve's death. I can't believe it's been 16 years. Page 12 showed Clark interviewing a Dr. Bowers on being NASA's first female astronaut going up in a space shuttle. You were correct that Dr. Bowers is fictional and the real first American woman was Sally Ride. I added American because the first woman was Russian, Valentina Tereshkova. I hope I said that right. Dr. Ride went into space June 18, 1983, and Superman 385 hit the stands April 14, 1983. I wonder why DC decided to use a fictional name instead of the real one. Guess we'll never know. Page 14, I noticed the Great Year blimp. That was funny. I took a look at the Metropolis mailbag. There were letters talking about one of my favorite Superman storylines, when Superman and Superboy switched minds for a couple of issues. A comment box mentioned that 19-year-old Helen Slater had been chosen to portray Supergirl on the big screen, and that Superman 3 was about to open in theaters. Another fine issue, and I can't wait to see what happens next. Don't know if it's action or Superman. But I'm sure you will tell us the next episode. And I eagerly await it. Thank you for keeping me entertained at work. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. But there is a pattern, or at least there was up until this episode, of, you know, Superman, and then action, and then Superman, and then action, and then Superman. Now starting next, or start when we get back to the Bronze Age, it'll be Superman, Superman, Superman. Action, action, Superman, action. It'll be fun to deal with. Anyway, so uh, I want to thank you guys for writing in. Thank you for thank you to Dave and Chris and Russell uh, and for correcting me on my pronunciation of Beetlejuice. Have I said it three times yet? I didn't say it in a row, so I think I'm safe. Anyway, I hope you all have a great week or so, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Charlie's GeekCast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. 
All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night. Good night.